All right, if you would uh, pray with me, we'll, we'll dig in. Here we go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning that you have given us, Lord, to consider our faith and even to consider practical life issues such as mental health and how it relates to your body, the church. We pray that you give me wisdom as I speak and, um, and us ears to hear and consider, Lord, how we can navigate these um, waters. We pray that you'll do that work this morning. Amen. So when it comes to depression, and then, by the way, I'll just start with the title. This is uh, about the Christian, the Christian and, and mental health, but more specifically as we've been looking at depression. Although the, the things that we will look at relate to, I think, all areas of mental health. When it comes to depression, the way it has worked out in the lives of a depressed Christian is different than the way it may be worked out in the lives of an unbeliever. That is, the aspects of how it, or the color of it, takes on additional aspects that the unbeliever does not consider. Namely, how to reconcile the spiritual implications with faith and the Christian life. That is not a, a, a category or a dynamic that unbelievers necessarily have to deal with. There is a Christian standard that we aspire to, one of peace and joy and trust and hope that we know are the marks of a true Christian, but when they are not our immediate experience, this can make the sense of darkness or hopelessness even more profound. On the other hand, we also have reason to be the most hopeful, even in the face of suffering, and we can learn to suffer well. All this to say that for the Christian, there are waters to navigate that the unbeliever doesn't really need to navigate. And today what I want to do is look at aspects of where depression commonly bumps up against Christian experience and living. What are the spiritual aspects of what we experience in depression that we as Christians are awfully, often painfully aware of? Well, one of the things that we want to look at, and, one of the, and these are all things that have come out of whole oh, things that I've wrestled with over the years. I'm sure there are other aspects where it might bump up and questions you may have. But one of the, um, the common things is, questions is, does God know, does God know my mental anguish? One of the things that the depressed or the afflicted person wants to know is, does, does God get it? The one who we pour our heart out to, does he get it? We want to know if God sees us in our pain and in our situation. We don't want a God who helps from a distance. If this pain is something that he won't miraculously cure, Will he walk through it with us? Not in a disinfected clinical sense, but in my messy personal experience. 
He certainly understands that we are going through a tough time, but does he get how we are feeling? Or is it for him all academic? Well, I guess I think he does for three reasons. Because how does God know mental anguish, right? For three reasons, I think he, he, he gets it. Number one, he himself has given us a language for our anguish. God might feel far away, but in reality, he is near to every one of us. As a believer, we have access to God as sons and daughters, but this heavenly father won't say not to bother him when he's working or watching the football game. He always has time for us and is eager for us to talk as eager for us to talk to him as he is to reveal himself to us. And God gave us a language through the inspiration of the Spirit to talk to him, though he doesn't give us a script. From Edward Welch in Looking Up from the Stubborn Darkness, in chapter 6, Edward Welch says this, It is not a script that he gives us. When we speak from a script, we are pretending. We wear the mask of another. We become actors. Instead, God gives us poetry that somehow give voice to the silences in our hearts. If we had the skills and the words, we would write many of those same words. So Psalm 6, 6, for example, and in your, if, you, if you want to jot these down, you can jot these down in your, in your handout if you got one. Psalm 6, 6, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. Or Psalm 13, verse 1 and 7. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And some other examples that you can note down, um, you can look at later for interest of time. Take a look at Psalm 55, verse 4 to 7. Psalm 55, 4 to 7. Or, or Psalm 69, verse 2 to 3. Or Psalm 88, verse 3, 6, 13 to 14. So the question is, how can God give us the language that describes so beautifully what we feel if he doesn't get it? That's reason number one. Reason number two Jesus himself has been tempted in every way, yet without sin. In Christ, God became, became like the people he created. As a person, a man of sorrows, Jesus was despised, rejected, forsaken, betrayed, misunderstood by the dull and hard of heart, hated, and all of this ultimately finding its peak at the cross. Think also of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
facing not only the physical pain, but the much more significant spiritual implications of the cross. Jesus was in anguish in that garden. He knew all that was going to happen to him. We, we see in John 18:4. He said, his soul was very sorrowful even unto death in Matthew 26, 38. Luke tells us that as he prayed more earnestly, his sweat fell as drops of blood in Luke twenty-two forty-four. This is hematotrosis, which is a bursting of the capillaries brought about by extreme anguish. Have you been in such extreme mental anguish that your capillaries have broken? Well, many of us who are depressed feel forsaken. Does Christ know what it's like to feel forsaken? You bet he does. On the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Mark 15, 34. For Christ, who had always been in perfect fellowship and love with God the Father, to feel forsaken by him must have been in anguish beyond anything that we can imagine or anything that we feel in our sense of being forsaken by God. That's reason number two, that God gets our mental anguish. Reason number three, we are the body of Christ. In Colossians 2.29, Christ is referred to as the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together, through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. We are the body of Christ and are joined to him by the Spirit who bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God, Romans 8, 16. In fact, and this is what it says in Romans 8, 26, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches our hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Well, what a great thing this is because there are many times when I am deeply depressed that my prayers are simply, oh God, God please, it hurts. That's, that's all I can manage sometimes. Help me. And we know that the Spirit does. What does all this mean but that there exists such an organic union with Christ through the Spirit that he knows what we're feeling? And, and I would say, can feel it, maybe. There's nothing lost in translation when our groanings and weaknesses and even our mental anguishes are presented before Christ by the Spirit. Nothing's lost in translation. Just as our head knows every ache and trouble that we feel in our body, physical body, so Christ, our head, is aware I think, and not in a sterile intellectual way, but in a deep identification with his body. So you have the question, does God get how much 
this hurts. And I think he does. I think he does. And for him, it's not just academic. And that's a comfort, right? Another question we ask when it comes to Christian experience in, in depression is, am I responsible for my depression? Or the sin associated with my depression? Well, in one sense, no. This whole world is steeped in sin and, and the broken, cursed nature of this world has been subjected, that it has been subjected to, is part of the consequences of sin. And not only is there toil and hardship, but things break down and things don't work right. There are aspects of depression that may be out of our control, such as physical factors that result from sickness like, like other sicknesses. There is a sense that God subjected this world to the curse as a result of Adam's sin, and depression falls into that realm of general cursedness on the one hand. On the other hand, are we responsible? Yes, I would say we are. In the same sense that free will is not really a thing as people like to think of it. Jonathan Edwards in Freedom of the Will notes that God will work on desires and will shape us through experiences so that we choose to do what we want to do. We choose based on real desires, even though they might have been shaped. And this is freedom. No one would say otherwise. Being able to act in accordance with our desires. No one acts out of a blank slate, which is the erroneous conception. But everyone starts to be shaped into the person they are from the day they're born and is influenced in countless other ways. In the same way, we may have influences and dynamics that we are not in control of. We may have an internal system that is out of whack that makes it difficult to think and act properly, but does not bypass our volition. That's important. We still choose to think and act in sinful, harmful ways when we are depressed. We still act in accordance with our desires or lack of desires. So the question isn't whether we are responsible for the sin that may be associated with depression. We're always responsible. But what do we do with it? And how do we make sense of it? Well, like any sin, we confess it. And we bring it to the cross. Knowing that Christ's sacrifice for sin is able to wash it all away. When he died... He died for all of our past, present, and future sin. And your sin is no surprise to God, although when you're depressed, you feel like, oh, I've, I've caught him off guard with that one. It's no surprise. Consider his sovereignty, which we touched on in Lesson 4, as in, in the causes. He could heal you and take away your depression at any moment, but perhaps has not even though he knows 
that the nature of it may even cause you to sin in ways and to degrees that you may not have without it. Yet he has ordained that you go through it. And yet you are still saved. Why? Because his grace and provision through his sacrifice is infinite grace and infinite mercy. If you are a caregiver of someone who is depressed, this is what needs to be impressed on them. Not the fact that they are sinning and need to confess. They know that. Let me tell you, they know that. Their sin is staring them in the face. Constantly. The problem for the depressed person is not that they are unaware of their sin, so don't camp on that as a caregiver. Rather, camp on the fact that the Lord has dealt with their sin, and that is an objective fact regardless of how they feel. One of the tendencies of the depressed person is to think about how bad they are. I'm so bad. I'm such a bad person, we constantly say over and over. And in fact, depression almost always exasperates sin. It does. Because it's hard. And we know it does. Depression is bad. It makes me bad, we think. So then, people do everything they can to either deny that they are depressed or push the thoughts and feelings away. Well, as everyone knows, the more you try not to think about something, the more you think about it. It's helpful if you can help a depressed person come to a place of acceptance. Not morbid resignation, but to a place where it is acknowledged for what it is, which then puts a person in a place where depression can be effectively worked on and the sin can be repented of. Another question that people who are depressed have that comes out of being a Christian is, am I really saved? Am I really saved? I have thought that many times. One of the predominant thoughts for a depressed Christian is whether they are saved or just playing a good Christian game. You think you've not only fooled everyone else, but yourself as well. After all, how could a Christian think and feel the things they do? Now, John Piper was helpful here, though I would caution someone who is depressed about much that John Piper says in terms of the affections. I would caution you. (laughs) He makes a lot out of the affections of the Christian, insisting that the affections are a necessary component of being a Christian. Well, what if you don't have any affections at all as the person who is depressed? When I was depressed and re- read some of his material about the affections, I thought, well, that's it. I'm not a real Christian because that's necessary. It has to be there. It's nowhere in my life. So what's the logical conclusion? I'm not saved. But 
I should have just kept reading his material because there is something he wrote that is very, very helpful. In When the Darkness Will Not Lift, John Piper writes this. I would say that a Christian, no matter how dark the season of his sadness, never is completely without joy in God. I mean that there remains in his heart the seed of joy in the form, perhaps, of only a remembered taste of goodness and an unwillingness to let the goodness go. This is not the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory that we read about in 1 Peter 1.8. It is not the joy that we have known at times and fight to regain. But it is a fragment of such joy. Like a man who sits in prison and pulls out a tattered picture of his wife or a paralyzed victim of a car accident who watches a video of the day that he could dance. Or, even more fragmentary, the joy may only lie there in the cellar of our soul in the form of penitent sadness that we cannot desire God as we ought. Inside that sadness is the seed of what we once knew of joy. Boy, I wish I had read that first. <laughs> and I think he's right. Joy is part of our duty as a Christian, and a depressed person is not joyful. This isn't an added burden. For the depressed person, the burden is always there. It's not an added burden to be, to be joyful. It, it's, it's there anyway. We can be honest and tell the Lord how much we long for him to restore our joy and that we repent over the fact that it is not what it is. Well, you may say repentance means turning from sin, so you've got to turn from this joylessness and be joyful. Well, for the depressed person, the turning is found, the repentance, the turning, the not giving in, is found in the continued fight for joy. That is an orientation in the opposite direction. the continued fight for joy, which may feel like the fight to breathe at times. It is not giving in, but a pursuit of joy. This is evidence of repentance. Though the grasp of joy may still be elusive. Many people act in accordance with how they feel. If they feel like doing something, or if I feel like doing something, I will. If I don't, I won't. A depressed person needs to continue on in spite of how they feel. And if you are a caregiver, while it is good to be empathetic, it is not good to be enabling. Sometimes, perhaps, many times, the kid gloves need to come off and the depressed person needs a kick in the pants. That's, I don't know how to say that more spiritually, but that's the way it is. That's the way it is. They need to get off the couch. They need to make a meal. 
They need to wash their face. They need to get dressed. They need to get chores done. They may need your help and support, but they do need to get moving. If you wait when you're depressed to want to do something, you will never do it. And it is something they can even learn to thank God for. The strength to put one foot in front of the other. The strength to do something nice for someone else, even when you don't feel it. It is the position of thankfulness and reliance. Though we confess that the joy may not be what it is, that keeps our efforts from becoming hypocritical. Hypocrites seek the praise of man. This orientation continues to seek the favor and glory of God. Another question. Can depression be redeemed? Or is it just an an awful thing? By this I mean to determine whether there can be any purpose or value in depression that would change it from a futile, purposeless experience to one with meaning. For if meaning, value, or benefit can be found in it, then perhaps it can be tolerated and lived with. But if meaning, value, benefit cannot be found in it, then it is something that needs to be eradicated at all costs. This is not to say that we need to be resigned to being depressed, but that we need to come to some healthy acceptance of the fact that it is something we are dealing with and may have to keep dealing with. And I think there are a few ways that depression, at least in my mind, I've come to redeem it in these ways. These are are really helpful for me that that actually helps me see that silver lining in my depression. Number one, suffering. It really comes down to how we deal with suffering, doesn't it? Depression is suffering. There is no debating that. We live in a world where suffering has no redeeming purpose. Suffering needs to be eradicated. No one should feel bad about anything or be caused to feel bad by anything. For the non-believer, the only redemptive purpose, though they won't recognize it, is that it may be discipline or judgment used by God to bring them to the end of themselves and drive them to himself. But They won't see it this way, probably. So depression for them has no purpose. It is meaningless. Many times. There is a tremendous effort to get rid of it. For if it is long-term, and then you die, it renders your life meaningless. In Canada, medical-assisted death is on the verge of being applied to mental illness. And I, and I think maybe, in, I think if I just read recently that it has in a case, I can't remember. Why? Why? It renders life meaningless if that is all there is and you die with no hope of life after death. 
death then is relief. But for the Christian, I love saying that, but for the Christian, mental illness, indeed all suffering, has great redemptive value. There are so many verses that offer perspectives on suffering. Indeed, it could be a Sunday school course in itself. However, let me take a couple just to remind you that for the Christian, suffering need not be eradicated but embraced. And I, can think, I can't think of a better verse to sum it up than 2 Corinthians 4.17. 2 Corinthians 4.17. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer, our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And this is the perspective we need to develop on suffering. The suffering serves a purpose. It says that this affection is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. That is, our suffering is causing us to look away from this world to treasure Christ in heaven and all that is ours in him. It causes us to put our hopes in the weight of eternal things and the more we gaze upon eternal things and eternal glory, the more our sufferings are put into perspective. They become light. Not because they become easy but because they become insignificant. For as Romans 8.18 says, they are not worth comparing, thus insignificance, with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Another way that, su- that depression can be redeemed is, is, is in thinking about faith. So what suffering serves to do then is to even deepen our faith. It deepens our hope for and confidence in the things that are not seen in Hebrews 1.1. It creates a longing for heaven. When you are depressed, let me tell you, this world is hopeless. And if you still believe in the world to come in Christ, it is not hopeless. You know this even though you don't feel it. You know it's not hopeless in your head. And this can serve to create, hopefully create, and I think it has in me, hopefully, and not as much as I would want it to, but it's, it's doing its work. Hopefully it would create a detachment to this world, or if you can develop that perspective, and maintain your fight to believe. Of course, it can also lead to an attachment to the pleasures of this world. That's the other side of it. If your depression becomes an excuse to self-medicate and self-comfort, you could go the other way and just get all the worldly comforts you can to surround you to make you feel better. Or you look in faith the other way and you keep pressing on and saying this world 
is not my home. There's got to be something better, and I know there's something better. One of the things that a depressed person feels or thinks is that they do not really believe. Others may assume that as well, as they may think that a true Christian will not become depressed. I've heard that. And that depression is incompatible with true faith. But nothing can be further from the truth. When you can see beyond the feelings, and especially when you get to a point where depression is managed, if not cured, then you can maintain your heavenly perspective and hope in spite of the fact that you feel crumbly and hopeless. When you develop a strong belief in the sovereignty of God, you can then trust his purposes for you, to whom he has promised to turn everything for good in Romans 8, 28. And you can, you can trust that, that his promises are true and they remain true. I may not understand why God has allowed me to struggle so long with depression, but I can affirm that it is producing in me and others something good that wouldn't be the case without it. It also helps you to cling to your objective identity in Christ and not your subjective experience because you don't like who you are. But when your identity is in Christ and his righteousness is your righteousness, outside of yourself, oh, do you want to cling to that? So, depression can deepen faith. It doesn't have to destroy it. By God's grace. Another way that depression is redeemed is in the area of ministry. In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 to 7, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. When we are able to develop a perspective on depression that redeems this seemingly hopeless and purposeless um, thing, it can be redeemed. It can produce in us an effectiveness in ministry that may not be so otherwise. And it's not just that a healthy, depressed person then is suited to minister to those who are depressed and struggling, but that you can help those who are in any affliction, it says. You may not know the particular colors and shades of what someone is going through, but that doesn't make you irrelevant to their need. If you know suffering, 
whatever it may be, and are strengthened through it by God's grace, rather than undone by it, you can then be a faith and perspective builder in someone who is not yet there. Where you have found comfort, be a comfort. And all this to say that for the Christian then, the weight of suffering is something that the Lord can redeem, and he does redeem. Suffering is turned in the hands of God for good. And if you're going to make any headway with your depression and rule over it rather than have it rule over you, this is the, dis- the perspective that you need to develop. So, depression or mental illness then is not something that renders you an evil person who doesn't deserve to live. But, I would say, an acceptedly broken person, an acceptedly broken person held together in God's hands as he reforms you into something greater than you are or you have been. Isn't that wonderful? We can be broken in God's hands and he's making something better out of the pieces because he promises to do that. Well, if that's the case, then I thank God for my depression. The conclusion, and I've called this conclusion, depression to the glory of God. Sounds like a misnomer, doesn't it? Depression to the glory of God. When my depression is really bad and I'm in a deep depressive time, I don't always actively think this way, that it's depression to the glory of God and all the things I've talked about. It can be a struggle. However, that the, faith that, the faith that it is so doesn't really leave me even though for a time it may all be obscured. I, I know that it's so. All the promises, even though for a time it's black. All things lighten up and I, do, and I, and I begin to do well again even with the use of medications. And as I begin to do well again, and for a lot of times I'm doing well, I think I'm doing well right now. But as I'm doing well again, I can praise God in a more convinced and feared way that all that he says is so. Even though when I'm depressed, I I know it, but I'm, I'm still hanging on. The problem with depression and perhaps most mental illness is that it attacks who you are. That's what, that's what makes it really hard. Though we are not just what we think and feel and do, how we think and what we do and what we feel is the God-designed way that we give expression to who we are. If we have cancer or heart disease or whatever, but our thinking and feelings are clear, we can clearly identify that we're not our disease. But what if all that makes us human is directly affected? Then who are we? And that's why Alzheimer's is such a devastating thing too. Because the person's not there. 
it would be easy to conclude that we are hypocritical blasphemers who have, not, who have no claim to God and no real faith. After all, look at the evidence. This is a case, however, where the evidence can be quite misleading. I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to go and throw in the towel of Christian faith when I'm depressed. And yet, you know what? Here I am, declaring that God is good. He's good. I have a future. The future is bright, even though at times the present is dark. It is one thing to praise God when all is going well, but suffering, including depression or mental illness, can become the backdrop by which God may be glorified in your life in ways that it wouldn't be without it. And so the end of the course, it's not the end of the course, I have, we have one more week next week, but I'll table that in a moment. This is how I'm going to wrap up everything, I think. It is my hope that those who are depressed have been encouraged through this series. It is my hope that you can start to see that you are not your depression, that you can accept the fact that you are depressed as being within the realms of God's purpose for you, and that you can see hope that your effectiveness as a Christian need not be compromised by your depression. There will be times when you need the help of others. If you are in a depressive episode, you will be humbled, to say the least, to need the support of others. But what the Lord said to Peter in Luke 22:32, I would say to you in this way. The Lord will keep your faith, even as he prayed that Peter's would not fail. The Lord will keep your faith, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. There will be times when you are not the Christian you want to be, but when you turn again, you will continue to be who God is making you to be. If you are not depressed, I pray that these lessons have given you a greater compassion for those who are depressed or anxious or, or mentally ill. For this suffering is not easily compartmentalized into a, a part of our body, but it is horrible. It's a horrible attack on one's sense of who they are. And it may be momentary, relatively short-lived, but it also may require you to come alongside someone in a more sustained way. But you don't have to be the cure if you're helping someone. You don't have to be the cure any more than you have to be the cure for someone's cancer. They just need a companion who can walk with them and keep walking with them till the darkness lifts and they can get help. The work can be hard. It is quite possibly harder to be around these people than around someone who has a physical ailment. 
but isn't twisting all of your efforts to help. Still, they need a friend. They need someone who will be a constant, patient, forgiving source of strength. And just being there to walk through life with them, you don't have to have the answers. They don't need a cheerleader or a pep rally leader or pep talker. They just need someone to provide the support. They need to get the help and the reminders of who they are in Christ, which is an objective, gloriously objective fact. I think I have time for maybe one question and then we'll wrap up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. When I say that they need a kick in the pants, you, you don't get rid of your compassion and empathy. At the same time that you affirm that it is hard, but I'm here to help you, you do say, but you can't stay here. It's not good for you. It's not good for those you're with. We've got to get doing something. And you know that. So you appeal to what the person knows. Because the depressed person will know that. They will know that. I know that when I'm depressed. That I, I can't just have a self-pity party and, and just sit and wallow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. So you do what you can manage. You're not going to go for a marathon. You're, you're going to say, well, that, well so, you have, so you can put it on them. So we're going to do something. What can you manage? And so that they participate with you in your help, not that you're just doing it to them, but they're participating with you in what healthy living in spite of your depression would look like, right? Because then you're not just having something done to you, but you are a participant, which maintains the dignity then I think of that, right? All right, well, let's pray. And next week, there is a question and answer time. Send me your questions, paul.taves at calvarygrace.com. Um, .ca, and, and I will look through them throughout this week and, and we'll see if we can answer some of the questions or thoughts that you have or, or questions you have. Um, let's pray and then we'll end. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you that we can have looked at these things. I pray, Lord, that whatever has come from this series, you will use it for the good of your people and for the good of your church, by your grace.
Amen.